We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Students wrote me a note that said, uh, chart to wear while Karen's recovering, and it was... Uh, Blue Levi's, blue shirt, blue Levi's, blue shirt, blue Levi's, blue shirt. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way. So um, that's what I did when she was in the hospital. So, you know, um, I want to share some, some thoughts with you today um, because the Bible has this unique way of teaching. And what we're going to look at is what is the character of God? And the best way to learn who someone is, is by what someone does. Because you can talk to your blue in the face. Um, kids read us, not by what we say, by what we do. I'm a teacher. They read me like a book. You know, we think we're smarter than them. They know exactly who we are and on down the line because they watch us and how we treat them. And uh, so I thought we'd just look at that and show you how God began to first teach humanity who he was. So if you've got your, your Bibles, go to the book of Exodus, and we'll just start there. And chapter 3. You know, what has been interesting for me is I've had lots of people um, over the years talk to me about how to find God. And uh, this goes from guys I used to work on the docks with to uh, often students come in and ask the same question because they fear, they figure out that they can ask all the difficult questions without me getting mad at them. And so they do. They'll come and say, all, you know, one kid just wrote on his opening paper, I don't believe in God. I'm here to do specific, but I don't believe. And uh, another one wrote in his in his paper, um, I went to church all my life, and now I don't believe. And I thought, okay, good. That's where you are. And so then the question is, how do you? And so let's start with chapter 3. It says, now Moses, verse 1, was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert, and came to Horeb, the mount of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. Now, let me uh, just share something with you. Sometimes the best way to meet God is to have a job. Do you realize that? He didn't meet God in church. He met God at work. See, Dr. B, how did you, did you ever get away from the Lord? Yes. How did you get back? It didn't happen at church. It happened at work. I wasn't working for my father-in-law. I was working for my father, who thought I was, you know, becoming a criminal. And uh, so one day he just, on his way to work, said, hey, get in the truck. You know, you don't argue with my dad. He's big. So, um... Uh, I got in the truck and we drove. He says, I'm going to do some, check some coolers. And so you, you know. So as soon as he left, 
I, I was 13. I got out and I ran around all around the, the place where he worked and I found out how to get on the roof. And I was going through all these different hatches because he had rented this building that was really old and it was really cool up there. And then I kind of figured out how my dad worked. And so I was back in the pickup, you know, half an hour before we got there or after we got there, knowing that he was going home. And I got in there and he got in the truck and then he looked at me and says, by the way, you're not coming home tonight. Helping your uncle, who was 19, I was 13. And my uncle, this was about 8.30, uh, he dropped me off at 4 a.m. in the morning, kind of poured me out onto the lawn, and drove away. And said, what would you do all those hours? Stack boxes full of tomatoes? In fact, um, the first time he says, okay, we're going to put all these boxes on a pallet. So he threw the first one at me. And this guy was 19 and big, and I wanted to impress him. So I caught it, and I stacked and he goes, stack them straight. Then he threw the next one harder and faster, and then he threw boxes at me basically to 4 a.m. And I stacked them, and you say, so you were, that's how you began to know God, stacking boxes. Yeah, I met God through a 19-year-old Christian. And I began to see the character of God, not at church, but at work. And so he would often introduce me to his other Christian college friends. He'd say, this is my pagan cousin, Bruce. And I was thinking, okay, we are cousins, and I am pagan, and that's that's fine, you know. And they would always be nice to me. You know, I guess in their church we were nice to pagans. Anyway, uh, but eventually, eventually, I began to see the character of God in a 19-year-old. Does that make sense? I began to notice that God had respect for women. You know why? Because the 19-year-old did. I began to learn a ton by watching. So here's Moses at work. All of a sudden, he sees this bush, and it's burning. And um, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. By the way, fire is a metaphor or a symbol for judgment, for wrath. And God's people were being pushed into the dirt. And so God appears to Moses, not as a a bunny, but as fire. Because when you kick people around, you anger the wrath of God. And so Moses meets God as fire, not against himself, Later, we're going to find out that wrath will be extended to Egypt, who was oppressing slaves. So he meets, he sees this fire, and he looks, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush wasn't consumed. In other words, he's watching a physical miracle right in front of him. And Moses said, I will turn aside now and see this great sight, why the bush doesn't burn. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, he called to him from the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, well, here I am. The first thing the Jews learned about God, especially this one, this Jew, is that God knows our name. There are thousands and millions of people on the earth. God knows our name. He knows your name as well. 
And then he said, and here's the key thing. Don't draw near this place. Take off your, sh- your sandals off your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I think if we're going to get near the real God that is, not a God we make up in our minds, but the God that really is, we sang it just before I stood up here. God is holy. He's other. And holiness is dangerous. Those of you who come from a Catholic background, the Catholic Church does a good job of teaching you the holiness of God. Sometimes we Protestants need to learn from them. Because he is holy. And someone one time came to me and said, are you afraid of God? I says, you bet your bottom dollar I am. I'm not afraid of you, though. He says, well, you shouldn't be afraid of God. God is love. I'm afraid of him. Because I'm not an idiot. He is awesome in power glory majesty, and I should take my shoes off if the ground is holy. So a lot of times we make up a God in our own image, and we haven't really meant God, we've made up a God in our own image, not the God that really is. And so the first thing you learn here, Moses learns, is God knows his name, but God says, you take your shoes off, you get on your knees, and of course Moses does. Um, the God of the, the Bible, the God that really is, is not a God that we can create, and he's not a concierge. He's not running around trying to go, oh, what can I do for you next? You know, down the line. That he does love us, but he loves us in a much more profound manner. Okay? Uh, go over to, to Genesis chapter 12, which is, of course, the other great personage in the Old Testament, is Abraham. And I thought we would look at his interactions mostly this morning and how he dealt with God. And then I want to show you something about God that goes right into the New Testament. Okay? So chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. God meets Abraham with demands. God isn't our servant. We are his. And he has commands and demands of us. And the true God of the world, the God that really is, he he demands of us. And if we haven't been demanded of God, we've never met him. And he basically says to Abraham, and what he says to Abraham is rather strange. Um, you know, in those days, they didn't have police. Um, and they didn't have an interpool, that sort of thing. If someone robbed you, you were protected by your family members. And if someone tried to oppress you, your clan defended you. And all the peoples of the earth lived in clans. Some of, they didn't have nations necessarily in those days. It was just your clan was everything. So if you left your clan, your family, you were wide open for robbery, attack, etc. And so the first thing God says to Abraham is, leave your protection and go where I tell you to go. Which is a frightening thing to hear. You see, if you met God in that way, I, yes, 
God always seems to want to push me where I'm not familiar. I remember telling God when I was in college, I will never teach. As much as I admire my teachers, I will never do it. Well, then I also told him I would never do youth work. I did that for seven and a half years full time. With the exact organization I told God I would never do. And you say, why don't you want to do youth work? Because I'm a serious, quiet person. I wear blues and variations thereof. The darker the blue, the happier Bruce is. Say, do you, ever, do you own any red shirts? Nope. Do you ever plan to own a red shirt? Nope. If your wife ever buys you a red shirt, that means she wants a divorce. She's mad at me. She doesn't buy me yellow. She's so, so you're, you're by nature a very quiet, sort of sedate person, yes. And to go do youth work was totally like a fish out of water, and I hated it. <clears throat> you say, see, always done stuff like that? Oh, yeah. You know what they said about me when I was a freshman? They said, still water runs deep. Bruce never talks. I speak constantly now. Not my choice. Not my choice. He demands that we go out of our comfort zones. We go and we face what we fear. He's going to push you if you get near the God of the Bible. So he says, get out. But then watch what he does next. Because what God does is what God is. The next two verses are very, very typical of the God of the Bible. Here it comes. He says, go where you're uncomfortable. Go where it's dangerous, where I'm pushing you, where I will delete, you know, direct you. But then it appears what follows. I will make you a great nation. There's a reason I want you to do this. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And then I love this. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. In other words, he's saying, you don't need your clan if you're following me. I'll get you back. Whoever touches you, I'll mess them up. And whoever blesses you, I will bless. I will be your clan. And then I love the last one. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The same God who spoke here in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, will come to earth. And he'll come in the flesh. And he will walk in the country of Israel. And he will teach with demands. His name is Jesus. But every demand on the lips of Jesus, if you open your Gospels and read it really carefully, every demand on the lips of Jesus is followed with reasons why you should do it. Let me give you a simple example. Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. You're not supposed to have a judgmental spirit. It's such a horrible thing to have. Well, why not? Because what goes around, Jesus says, comes around. So he gives you a reason why you should do things. And I challenge you to go through the Gospels and find a command on the lips of Jesus that isn't followed by a motive. Why you should do it. A motive clause, a reason. You say, well, why does he do that? 
because we're human and we're made in his image and we're valuable to him and he respects us. He respects your mind. This is the God of the Bible. This is how he treats humans. He knows them by name. Yes, he's demanding, but he does not think you're dirt. You're made in his image and he respects you. He doesn't have to. He has chosen to. I learned this when I started to do youth work. I realized that if I don't give the kids reasons why they should do things, I was wrong. And I began to watch how some of the kids I work with are really from, you know, from the rough parts of town. And they had never gone to church in their lives. And then when I had my own kids, I remember one day reading the Gospels and seeing this pattern. And I, I used to always read my kids little stories or I would make up stories, you know, before they go to bed for about ten minutes. And uh, one day I got through the ten minutes. And I says, okay, time to go to bed. I go, no. I said, come on, time to go to bed. No, why? Because you know, they were all boys, you know. And then I thought, okay, Jesus would give them a reason. So I said, it's because you got school tomorrow, which is a really dumb reason. And they bought it. And then I began to realize, you need to think out everything you're commanding your children or your students and know reasons why. And if you respect them, you'll know those reasons and give them. You owe that to them because they're human and they're made in the image of God. You say, well, I'm the parent. I do not have to give reasons for my actions. Well, God is the God of the universe. And if he does, so should we. And if we're going to be good fathers, if we're going to be good teachers, if we're going to be good leaders at work, if we're going to be good foremans at work, we need to give reasons. Because that's the God of Israel. It's the God of the Bible. Well, Abraham, as you do know, does go. Um, he will become a great nation, except if you know anything about the story, um, he's got a problem. His wife is incapable of having children. Her name is Sarai at the, at the beginning. And so as the story progresses, um, every time if you carefully read through chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, God keeps his word. God always protects Abraham no matter where he's gone, no matter how stupid he is at times. He's not perfect. He acts like an idiot at the end of verse, or chapter 12. And God kind of protects his back. But as you read through the story one thing begins to slowly emerge, and that is Sarah can't have a child, and how can you be a great nation and bless all the families of the earth when as soon as you're dead, it's over? And in chapter 13, God promises him land. And in those days, land meant you had dignity. The rich had land. The poor were slaves. But in the Bible, everyone is to have land. Everyone is to have dignity. And so he says, I will give this land to your, your descendants, but you can't hold a land as God shows him the land unless you've got descendants and he's got zero. And so Abraham, when this all begins, is 75 and he's not going to get this child for 25 years. So for 25 years, he hears the promises of God. 
and they don't take place. And if you know the story well, um, you know, uh, eventually Abraham says, um, well, uh, about, you know, having descendants as numerous as the stars, uh, how about just one? And it doesn't work. And then, of course, who else feels the pressure? Sarai. She's watched the faith and the power of her husband's faith. She's seen his courage. She's watched him be protected by God. She's watched the power of God protect her and her dignity and her honor. But she knows it's her that's blocking everything. Because we know it's not Abraham, because Sarah panics and says, Take my maid as my as your as your you know secondary wife as a concubine, and then the child she bears, it'll be my gift to you. And uh so Abraham, there's nothing wrong with Abraham. Uh, Hagar has a child and bears Ishmael. And then God says, No, it's gonna come from your wife. And so this goes on and on and on and on. You say, well, what are you saying about the character of God? The character of God's going to make promises to you, and they're not all going to take place as fast as you want. You say, well, that's a terrible thing. What a mean God. Potentially, you could see it that way. You say, has God made promises to you that didn't immediately come true? Yeah. Why does he do that? Here's a thought. In the delay is a chance for faith. If everything you needed came instantly, you'd never have to have faith. Remember when they were traveling in the desert? Did he have pools of water stationed at every break when they were traveling from the Red Sea down to Mount Sinai? No. And then when they didn't see where they'd get water, they would complain instead of have faith. And you say, why didn't God just have pools of water every two miles? They never would have had any stress. Yeah? How many of you have stress in your life? Does that mean you're out of God's will or perhaps in it? You say, why didn't God... I have a student. In fact, I want him to come and meet your pastor. I've talked about your pastor with him. The two are an awful lot alike. He's, he's a young guy, but he's really anointed by the Lord. And he's prayed over people multiple times and they've been healed. You see, why don't you get your student have him pray over your wife? God didn't do it that way. So did you go talk to your student? Yes. Did you mention your wife needed heart surgery? Yes. Did you mention your wife was just petrified that she would become brain dead. She thought that was her greatest fear, not dying. That she would go in there and they'd open her heart and then she'd, you know, be brain dead and we, or she'd be, you know, a burden the rest of her life. And if she break her heart, she's been a servant all her life and a giver. And she didn't want to be a burden. And this thing just preyed on her mind. And, and I totally understand that. I could see, especially someone like her, feeling that way. And you say, why didn't God take all that away? He didn't. He chose not to. In fact, the, very, the time I met with my student, yeah, he says, oh yeah, I was at a meeting over in Azusa, and he said, I, I laid hands on this guy, and right in front of me, his leg changed. He was not a believer, and he was healed. And I was thinking, cool, I want you to pray over my wife. 
then I thought, you're not supposed to, you know, anyway, but he will do that to you. And he's done that to me all my life. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't like that. I like it to let go this way. Give us this day a truckload of bread. Right? Because then you don't have to worry. You can just load it all up in your freezer. You don't have to depend upon him daily and have faith. And I'm like you. I have some bills to face. And I'm not sure exactly how it's all going to work out. Well, you know, in my fantasy mind, I would like to somehow come across $100,000 to pay all these bills. You know. Well, he ain't done that. And he probably was choosing not to do that. Where I walk day by day like you do. We do. We have to go day by day. And he will delay. And in that delay, there's an opportunity. Now, what I love about the story of Abraham is he goes through periodic, and so does Sarai, um, episodes of panic. They're not perfect, which kind of makes me like the stories better because I've never been perfect in my faith. I panic at times. Sarah panics by making Hagar, you know, the surrogate mom, which the Lord rejects. Um, the Lord also goes, I mean, Abraham goes to the Lord and he says, you know, i got this really good servant. Can I adopt him as my son? God goes, no. Then God goes, or Abraham goes to God and he says, can Ishmael be my heir? No. And then God says, it'll come from the womb of your own wife. Chapter 17. And Abraham does a strange thing. He laughs. He goes, I'm 99, and she's 89. <laughs> she's, uh-uh. But he listens respectfully to God. Now, oh, go to chapter 18, and then I want to show you something that's very deep in these books. That it seems when you read these stories is strange until you think about it as a parent. Okay? Chapter 18, verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to him by the tabreth trees of Mamre. And he was sitting in the tent in the door at the heat of the day. If I may say so, what's happening here is a siesta. Americans work through one to three in the afternoon. We get little or nothing done. But we're a workaholic nation. Most of the world takes a siesta. And then they work later in the evening and they, they're, they, you know, they're productive. But Abraham's, it's the heat of the day, so he's at, he's inside his tent near the flap. And he lifts up his eyes and beholds there are three men standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and he bowed himself to the ground. And he said, my Lord, if I now have found favor in your sight, don't pass by on your servants. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh your hearts, and then you may pass by, and as much as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. See, in the ancient world, and still if you go to the Middle East today, they believe, especially the, 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 the responsible parts of the, of the countries, that hospitality is extremely important. And so Abraham sees these three guys probably coming off the desert. He knows they're probably weary. And he knows they're vulnerable. You couldn't go to hotels in those days. There were none. 
You couldn't go to, you know, like Motel 6 or, you know, Marriott's. Or, you know, you had to de- depend upon the kindness of strangers. And so Abraham, who had been a stranger and knew what it was like, he runs out and he says, let me, let me give you uh, just a drink of water and a piece of bread. That's what he offers. Please, let me do this. Please, he says. And they said, okay, go ahead. And then here comes. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah, who's been renamed. She used to be Sarai. Sarah means mother. has a mother ending to it. and Of course, she has no kids. But anyway, to the Sarah, he says, quickly, make three measures of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And then he ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the young men, and he hastened to prepare it. And then he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. In other words, he said, I'll bring you bread and water, and he brought them the very valuable thing to drink in the ancient world, which is, you know, basically a form of milk, which has tons of nutrients in it, and is very valuable. And then he doesn't bring him a piece of bread. He brings him fine-baked cakes and filet mignon. You always trust the guy who promises A and delivers A, B, and C. That's who Abraham is. And then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, this is kind of hard for you to understand, but in the ancient world, sometimes women listened in on conversations. They don't do this today. Women don't do that today at all. But in that, that time, in the, these, Sarah was doing that. So she was listening behind the door. And, and then the, the Bible beautifully does this. He says, now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. She's past menopause. Well, she's 90. You'd think she would be. Oh, she's 89. Pretty close. And therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, Yeah, right. After I'm grown old, shall I have pleasure in my, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I am Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah will have a son. Then look at verse 15. Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. Or she was afraid. She's now figuring out how does this guy know her name? How does he know her age? And how did he know she laughed? She's hiding behind the tent door. She now realizes she's in the presence of someone very, very special, possibly divine. And she's frightened. She goes, I didn't laugh. And he said, no, you did. Then let me read you verse 16. Then God punished Sarah, and she was in pain for 22 days. Did you see that? It's not there, is it? What was the punishment for Sarah laughing at the promise of God? That's rude. 
Sarah had no faith. She was rude. And what was the penalty? None. She didn't show holiness to God. That's often severely punished in the Bible. Here, none. Let me read on. Then the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now, I don't know if you can picture this, but uh, Abraham is um, is walking behind these three strangers, one of whom is God, and the other two are angels. Abraham hasn't quite figured totally the angel part out, but he's now beginning to realize he's speaking to God. But he's been a great host, and a great host invites you in when you come to their house, and then they walk you to your car, especially. Like, my house is kind of an interesting one. Um, we're right up against the, the that those hills up in Monrovia, and uh, there's been bears on our block a lot. There's often coyotes there, and and we sometimes we have one of my former bosses comes and has dinner with us, and I always walk him to his car because, you know, I don't want my boss former boss being killed by a bear. Not that the bear would hurt him. It would just run away. But, I mean, you know, it would freak him out, and that's, you know, so I always walk out there, you know. You guys come and visit me, you know, that's, we'll, we'll feed you really well. My wife's a great cook. Give her a few weeks to recover, but then she's a great cook. Um, but, you know, you guys, most of you are pretty young. You could probably, you know, scare the bear off yourself. Anyway, but, uh, with older people, I'll walk, cause that's just polite, right? And if it's a female, of course, you'd walk them to their car, especially since the bear's been coming down the block every other night. But, it's a polite thing to do. That's really what Abraham's doing. He's walking his guest out. So as he's showing respect and showing hospitality, he gets to overhear God talk about him. And what does he learn? He learns that God thinks he's really cool. Should I hold anything back from Abraham because he's going to be so important on the earth? And he's going to teach his children and those way after him righteousness and justice. The world has filled with people who have no righteousness, and it's filled with the people with the world is filled with people who have no justice. But the people of God will be just and will be righteous because they will be taught. Just like you teach all in your Bible studies. You get to hear many week after week. By the way, I was here in the summer, too. I don't know if you know that. He said, not to speak, you know, and I just came to visit. He said, why? Because a couple called me up and they said, hey, we're in your area. We used to go to school with them. And they said, uh, are you speaking anywhere? And we'll come and hear you. Just like when you spoke in Sacramento where we live and you, you spoke at a, at a Russian church. We went and heard it and we got to hear everything sung in Russian. It was really cool. So are you speaking anywhere? You seem to speak at cool places. And I said, no. But come anyway, and I'll take you to a cool church. So I brought them here. They loved your church. 
Besides, they go to Mexico all the time and serve. And they figured out by just reading your bulletin how much you serve. And they were blessed. Isn't that interesting? Your bulletin really blessed them. Besides, just being with you. But I, they're, they're walking, you know, Abraham's walking behind them and he hears this. And so you'd have to ask yourself, why does God let Abraham overhear? Why would he do that? Wouldn't that build his pride? Why is he doing this? And then he's not over. God says, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I'm going to go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come up to me. And if not, I will know. And then the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. So if you could picture this, there's four of them. Abraham, the two angels, and God. The two angels take off and go down to to Sodom to check out to see how wicked it is. Abraham has been to Sodom. He knows it's a cesspool. He knows the moment the angels get there, they're going to see what a corrupt and horrible city it is. And he knows then God is going to judge it and destroy it. And here's the problem. Abraham has a relative down there. Do you guys know his name? And Lot, by the way, if you've read the stories, chose Sodom and the areas around it because it was more fertile land and he dissed his uncle and took the better land when Abraham gave him a choice, which is really politically incorrect and socially incorrect in the Middle East. You show respect to elders. You don't take the better thing. And though Lot had dissed Abraham in chapter 13, in chapter 14, Abraham risked his life and saved Lot from slavery when Sodom was attacked. And yet, Lot went back to Sodom. He went back to the world, went back to sin. And Abraham knows he's there. It's his nephew. Yeah, he's been rude, but he's still blood. He's still family. Yeah, he's chosen the world. Yeah, but he's still family. You see, do you have cousins that have made mistakes? Yeah, I've had children that have made mistakes. In fact, I have brothers and sisters when they were young that made big mistakes. In fact, uh, they had a brother named Bruce that made big mistakes. And my parents never went down to the, you know, the courthouse and disowned us. They kept us as children. In fact, guess what they did for us? They prayed for us. There wasn't much else they could do. My mother said, used to say, for a long time she could never close her eyes without seeing my face, and she would pray. And I'm here this morning because she did. So Abraham is a righteous man, and now begins his prayer for Lot so he doesn't get destroyed. Here it goes. And Abraham came near and said, Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? That's an interesting question to ask God, isn't it? 
If you want to get the policeman to not give you a ticket, would your opening line be, Are you fair? And suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Who is basically impugning God's character? Abraham. Is he being just a titch rude? God said, I like Abraham because he's going to teach his family righteousness and justice. Then Abraham turns around and says, God, do you know how to be God? Okay, here's verse, I think that's verse 25. Let me read verse 26. And the Lord said, how rude of you. And he killed Abraham right there. Now, this is what's so amazing. If I find in Sodom 50 righteousness within the city, I will not spare all the place. I will spare all the place for their sakes. No rebuke. Okay, he says. But this is God he's just spoken to. This is okay. And then, of course, you know the story. It gets kind of really cool. Then he goes up. It's kind of like uh, bargaining, you know. He goes um then Abraham said, well, now, see, now Abraham realizes he's been an idiot. He says, I am but dust and ashes, and I take it upon myself even to speak to you. He's kind of really realizing what dangerous ground he's on. So suppose there's five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? And he said, if I find 45, I will not destroy it. And then he spoke to him yet again. And he says, suppose there should be 40. He says, okay, 40. Then he says, oh, no, don't let the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose there are 30. And he says, okay, I won't do it for 30. And then he says, now indeed I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found. And he says, I will not destroy it for 20. And then he says, let not let the Lord be angry and I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he says, okay, 10's enough. Now, question. How many were down there? Four. So did the city get destroyed? But was Abraham praying for the city or for Lot? So did he get his prayer? And when you read the story in chapter 19, the angels go to Lot and say, get out of the city. We can't do anything until we get you out. We are bound by the prayers of a righteous man. Because God has chose so, so chosen to bind himself to your prayers. Who wanted Abraham to pray? Who told him he was really cool? Doesn't that give you courage to pray? And then who told him that he was going down to Sodom in the first place? God let him over here. So why did God not chastise him for being rude? Why did he let that go? Why did he not punish Sarah for being rude and having lack of faith? Who knows that for 25 years, Sarah has struggled with her infertility? 
Who knows that she got up every morning knowing that she is holding up the promises of God. She didn't want to. It must have been exceedingly frustrating as year after year rolled by and she saw relatives have children or she saw lots children have, you know, he had children. She saw others have children and she has nothing and it must have worn on her. And when finally she hears you will be pregnant at 89, she laughs and does God punish her. Or does God know he's stressed this woman a lot and he's going to give her a little grace? This is the God of the Bible. He knows he pushes his people. And when we falter a bit, he understands. And do you see why he doesn't get angry at Abraham? He wants Abraham to care. And maybe Abraham cares so much he's rude in one point. And God lets that slide because what he really wants is for us to care about the people who haven't always been nice to us, but we will go to the mat fighting for them in prayer. And God's not so much a legalist that he's going to stand on, hey, you weren't completely righteous to me. Sometimes you got to cut one out of slack. And God cuts his people's life. That's what the Jews were learning. Go to God. He wants you to be there. He will push you. But he will understand that you're pushed. You guys know that before Jesus died, he went to the garden, right? He asked the disciples to do what for him? Well, he prayed in the garden and struggled with the enormous pressure what lay before him. What did the disciples do? How many times did Jesus come to them and say, Are you still sleeping? Won't you struggle with me and hold me up in prayer? How many times that happened? So who were the disciples? Oh, they were disciples of Jesus and they were jerks. Why didn't he get better men? Does he fire them in the garden? Does he go, man, you could have stayed one hour and prayed for me? You guys are losers. I'm going to go down and get a whole new group of guys. See you guys. I'll be back. Then I'll keep praying and then I'll go to the cross. Remember when they panicked in the boat? And he says, where's your faith? Did he fire them when they got to the shore? Did he stress them? Who got them to get in the boat? Who fell asleep on them? Is God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament? Much alike. Let me end with this. Jesus says to the disciples, The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. That's after he chastised them. Can't you stay awake? But then he says that little statement, that little metaphor. And then he says, all right, get up. The sinners are here. Let me share something with you. If I was a disciple, and after they hauled my master away, and I realized that the guy that I love more than anything in the world, I let down, I would have just been crushed. And as the days would go on, it would have crushed me. 
But Jesus slips this little phrase in there saying, the spirit was willing. I know you wanted to, but your body betrayed you. What was he really doing when he said that statement, that little saying? He was forgiving him. He knows he pushes you, and he will push you in the days to come. And do your best and keep struggling. And you may laugh at his promises, and you shouldn't. And you'll be called on it, but he ain't going to punish you. By the way, guess what they named the boy? Abraham and Sarah. Isaac. Do you know what Isaac means? It means laughter. Which, what is, why did they name him laughter? Did they name him laughter? Because all the ladies all around in the surrounding tents and stuff in the area, the, hey, that 89-year-old woman's pregnant. <laughs> Was that why they named him laughter? Imagine her getting up to feed at 2 o'clock. She's 89. Or did they name him laughter because once she got a baby, like was said at this earlier this morning, all the pain doesn't count. The joy of the new life is what counts. Or did they call him laughter because God got the last laugh? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to always let us go into the Bible and watch you and to see what you do and learn from your character and realize that you have never changed. You're the same today, yesterday, and forever. That you are demanding and holy and powerful. But you know our name and you understand our weaknesses. Father, I also ask that you give me the wisdom to try to act like you. To be demanding and, and ask much. But also, Father, to be patient and to realize that sometimes people can't stand up to everything they're asked. And we need to cut them slack. Father, give us wisdom to be like you. But first and foremost, we thank you for being you. And we say these things and we ask these things in your name, in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.